Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio. My name is Joe Wegasani. Before dawn on a cold and wet morning in late December 2023, co-host Julian Smith, hello, photographer Dominique Roviglio and I bundled into a little red car in Amsterdam and drove through the wet greyness and the traffic congestion that typifies this time of year in the low countries, heading towards Brussels. We were making this journey to meet Simon Granovsky a 92-year-old jazz pianist, lawyer, and Holocaust survivor. In 1943, at the age of 11, Simon was locked in a cattle wagon with his mother and around 50 other people after having spent a month's imprisonment at the Dossin barracks in Mechelen, all for the crime of being Jewish. The train they had been herded onto was bound for the extermination camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau. This was the 20th such mass deportation of Jews from Belgium, but this train trip would be unique in World War II. The 20th convoy became the only deportation train in the entire continent to be attacked and stopped by resistance fighters, allowing around 100 people to escape. Simon Granovsky was one of these people, and it is his story that we are going to explore in today's episode, we arrive outside a beautiful house in the iconic Excella neighborhood, Elsena in Dutch, in Brussels' southeast. We are excited and a bit nervous to meet him. The door flings open as soon as the doorbell has been rung, and there stands Simon. He is short in stature, but big in presence. He lets us in and busily shuffles us through to his study, which boasts a large hardwood desk neatly arrayed in stacks of paper, stationery, and photos of grandchildren. He tells us he has lived in this house for 30 years. Next to the desk is a piano keyboard, facing out the front window to the street in front of the house. While we set up the recording equipment, he sits at it and begins to play. Yes, John Lennon. 
Imagine. Imagine. <laughs> Once we were ready, he began to tell us his story. My family was very simple. My father was born in a small village in Poland. He loved Poland. It was his homeland. But after the First World War, there were many problems in Poland. Unemployment, misery, brutality, and anti-Semitism. So my father fled and sought refuge in Belgium. He entered Belgium illegally. He was an undocumented immigrant before the term existed. That's why I, today, stand in solidarity with today's undocumented people, refugees, immigrants. It is Belgium's honor to welcome them with humanity and dignity, treating them all the same way. My father finally worked in a coal mine, then started a business in leather, leather goods. My mother came from Lithuania. They married in Liège, like in 1923. My sister Ita was born in Liège on September 24, 1924. And I was born myself in Brussels on October 12, 1931. So I'm today 92 years old. My sister was a great classical pianist. She loved jazz. My parents even bought their own house in Brussels, Etterbeek. Simon's family were among the majority of Jews in Belgium who were not citizens, but who called the country home. When Belgium had won its independence from the Netherlands in 1830, there were around 1,000 Jews living there. A hundred years later, that number had grown to around 75,000, as Jewish families such as the Gronowskis escaped from pogroms in Eastern Europe and later Germany and headed towards Belgium, many with the dream of emigrating onwards to the United States or Canada. Their lives and fates were very much tied in with the fate of their new home. Simon's father, Leon, had worked his way from doing hellish hours in the coal mines of Liège before becoming a leather goods salesman, eventually coming to own his own shop and buying a house in a bourgeois neighbourhood of Brussels. With his wife, Hannah, they created a family, having a daughter, Ita, in September 1924, and then Simon in October 1931. In the words of historian Marion Schreiber, who described Leon Gronowski in her book on these events titled The 20th Train, quote, He wanted his children to grow up outside the Jewish ghetto and, unlike himself, to enjoy a free, non-religious education, end quote. When Simon was eight years old, the Germans invaded Belgium, and Leon and Hannah decided to flee from the bombardment. 
They joined thousands of others on the road heading west in the direction of France. They spent fearful hours hiding in the forest near the French border, but when the outcome of the invasion was clear, they headed back for Brussels. On this return trek, Simon bore witness to the first devastations of war. There would be far worse to come. The first anti-Semitic laws were introduced in Belgium about five months into the occupation, similar to those enforced in Germany, France and the Netherlands. Jews now had to register with their towns and cities and were removed from working in the civil service. Over the next two years, 17 anti-Semitic laws and ordinances were passed. From May 27, 1942, Jews were obliged to identify themselves and their businesses with the Yellow Star of David. Simon's older sister, Ita, expressed her feelings about this ignominy in a letter to a friend, saying that the star demeaned them to being, quote, stared at like a rare animal. They assess you, they weigh you up. I force myself to laugh, but deep inside I am filled with bitterness, end quote. Simon, meanwhile, on the verge of turning 11, concerned himself mainly with his time in the Boy Scouts, which he loved. In the summer of 1942, he spent four weeks at a scout camp in Deist, learning different skills around survival and self-reliance, including how to orient oneself at night by using the stars. When he returned home, however, events would move quickly beyond his and his family's control. By September 1942, things were dangerous enough for the Kronovskis that at the urging of friends, they moved out of their house, the address known to the Germans, into a cramped apartment in Saint-Lambert's Volour. They would find shelter there for six months, however they could not escape the clutches of the Nazi occupiers. On March 17, 1943, Leon Gronowski was in hospital. The rest of his family, however, Hannah, Ita and Simon, were sitting down for breakfast at home when there was a heavy knock on the door. It was the Gestapo. When I was 11 years old, the Nazi took me on March 1743, threw me into a cell in the Gestapo basement on Avenue Louise in Brussels. And the next day, into a large prison, the Dossin Barracks in Mechelen. I stayed there, locked up for a month. Life inside the Dossin Barracks was hard. Simon and his mother, Hannah, were labelled with the numbers 1233 and 1234C20, the C20 meaning they were to be deported on the 20th convoy. Simon's sister, Ita, was not given such a label. The children of immigrants who were born in Belgium could choose to become Belgian at 16, and she had exercised this right. As such, she could not be deported. Yet. There were rumours in the prison that people who had been deported on previous convoys had managed to jump to their freedom. Simon and some of the other children practised jumping from the top bunk of their beds, which in any other context sounds like a fun game, but in this one is morbidly depressing. After a month of waiting, their time came, and Simon and Hannah were loaded at gunpoint into a train wagon, while Ita remained behind, watching them from a window as a friend consoled her. 
Then they put me in a cattle car with my mother and 50 other mourning people around me. It was the 20th convoy, April 1943. And I didn't understand what was happened. I was still in my Boy Scouts world. I didn't know that I had been sentenced to death and that this train would take me to the site of my execution. Unbeknownst to anybody on that train, three young resistance fighters had been plotting a bold act of subversion that they hoped would save lives. Their names were Jura Lifschitz, a dashing 27-year-old Jewish doctor from a wealthy Bessarabian family, and his school friends Robert Mastriot and Jean-Franc Lemont. Lifschitz would later be caught and executed, though the others survived the war. In later years, Robert Mastriot would say of the attack, quote, We were perhaps a bit naive. After all, for Jean and myself, it was the first operation in which we had taken part. It was a trial by fire. End quote. The plan was simple but very dangerous. The three men hidden in the train tracks in a forest nearby Bort Mirbeek, they had three things. A lamp to which they had glued some red paper, some wire cutters, and a pistol. They placed the lamp on the train tracks to make it look like a railway signal telling the machinist to stop the locomotive. When the train rounded a bend and the driver saw the lamp, he brought the whole thing to a screeching halt. At this point, Jura Lifschitz fired his pistol a few times, trying to bluff the armed guards on the train that a larger force was attacking them. Robert Mastriot and Jean-Franc Lemont approached the train in different locations, armed with their wire cutters, and tried fervently to cut through the barbed wire which locked the doors of the cattle cars shut. I want to thank the heroes who risked their lives to save me. The three young resistance fighters, young boy, who stopped my train in both Mirbeek and freed 17 people, a unique fate throughout the war. We asked Simon Gronowski more about this moment. He answered in his native French, which his grandson Roman was kind enough to translate for us. So he was in a cattle car and it was really dark. And suddenly he felt that the train was stopping. He could uh, hear that uh, there were people running uh, next to the train and they were yelling in German. It was an escort of uh, Waffen-SS. I could not see anything and I didn't know anything. But I could hear the gunshot and the yells in German. It's just really a long time after the war that, I, that he learned what happened during this night. During the attack, the three young men only managed to open the door of one of the cattle cars by the time the train guards realised that this was no large-scale attack and got the train moving again. In the meantime, 17 people in the cart had made the split-second decision to escape to freedom. But Simon Gronowski's cattle car had not been the one which was opened, and he and his mother remained on the train. 
Simon recalls that men in the carriage were emboldened by the attack and began making attempts to open the door from the inside. Simon fell asleep, but at some point his mother shook him awake. The door had been successfully opened. He describes this moment in his book titled Finally Liberated. Quote, I felt how the fresh air streamed into the wagon and heard the noise of the wheels on the track. End quote. A few brave men jumped out of the wagon and Hannah Gronowski made the fateful decision to shepherd her child out onto the lower step that was attached to the wagon's outer side. She wanted him to jump, but the train was moving quickly. He heard her exclaim, Der Zug geht zu schnell. The train is going too fast. She took the risk anyway and pushed Simon out. Those were the last words he ever heard her say. But for me, the first heldin, heroine, is my mother. She put her little boy on the step of the wagon, the step for freedom and life, and continued her journey to the death in Auschwitz. Almost immediately after Simon's jump for freedom, the train slowed and stopped. Hannah had not been able to make the jump herself. Guards appeared, shouting in the direction of those who, like Simon, had fled from the wagon. Gunshots rang out. Simon's first instinct was to run back to his mother, to the safety of her arms. But he pushed this temptation away and instead turned away from the train and ran into the nearby forest. Put yourself in this position. What would be going through your head as you fled, footstep after fleeing footstep, through strange and dark forests, away from this nightmare and into absolute uncertainty? For Simon, it was music, and one particular song which was popular at the time. When I escaped of the train, when I jumped, I ran the whole night in the woods, and I sung... Because my sister loved this number. Ran all the night through woods and fields to reach a, a gendarme, a Reichswachter in Borglone, in Limburg. Who did not betray me if the Nazis had known that a Belgian gendarme had protected an escaped Jewish child, they would have shot him immediately. We'll be back after this break. Simon describes his escape from the cattle wagon as a miracle. It was a series of fortunate events and lucky meetings with good people. Had any of these occurrences gone differently, he would have been sent to his death. The attack on the train, the wagon door being opened from the inside, his mother's decision to push him to safety, and that he was not instantly caught or shot. 233 people jumped off the train that night, but of these, 89 were recaptured, 26 were either shot or died from the fall, 
and only 118 actually escaped. Simon was the youngest. To continue his run of good luck during this most unlucky of life situations, when he showed up at this Flemish gendarme's house, a French-speaking child with a tall story about having been playing with friends and getting lost, the policeman did not turn him in, but left him with his wife and rode into town. There, he heard the news about the train attack and put all the pieces together. Returning to Simon at his house, the policeman said, quote, I know everything. You were in that train which was taking the Jews to Germany. You are able to escape. You don't have to be scared. I'm a good Belgian. I won't turn you in. End quote. Very, very lucky. The policeman and his wife took Simon in for the night and then got him on a train to Brussels the next day. Again, purely by luck, he had no issues getting back to his neighbourhood, where he found family friends who reunited him with his father that evening. They would only be together for a short time, however. From then until the end of the war, he and his father were hidden in different places, the two of them only able to communicate via letters. Simon remains forever grateful for those who kept him hidden. The Catholic families who hid me for 17 months until the liberation of Belgium on September 3, 1944, and saved me. They are heroes. Many Belgians, often of modest means, came to the aid of the persecuted, following only their When the war ended, Simon was reunited once more with his father. They waited for news on his mother and sister, who had been deported in a later convoy, hoping that they would return. In his book, Finally Liberated, Simon writes, In the spring of 1945, the Allies entered Germany. Soon, my mother and sister would be home. But when the Allies discovered the concentration camps of Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, Dachau, Ravensbrück, the mountains of corpses, the mass graves, the gas chambers, the incinerators, the gritty survivors. My father understood that they would not return. He was left alone in an impossible dialogue with his 13-year-old son, the witness to his agony. Grief prevented him from fighting his illness. Inconsolable. He died on July 9th, 1945. I am a victim of the extreme right. The Nazi killed my mother and my sister in the gas chamber of Auschwitz-Birkenau in the year 1943. And my father died in despair. After the war, I was alone in the world. Simon found a way to carry on with life. For the first two years after the war, he lived with a foster family. But when he inherited his parents' house in Brussels, he moved into a room in the attic and rented out the other rooms to tenants. With this income, he was able to pay for his education, eventually becoming a lawyer, getting married, and having a family of his own. And for 60 years, I spoke very little 
about these tragic events. But in the year 1995, I was told that I had to testify and write my story. My first book was published in 2002. It didn't change me, but it changed my life. Since then, I have been called to testify everywhere, in Belgium and beyond, in front of young people and all, and often in schools. And now I speak for several reasons. First reason, some say that all this is not true, that there are no massacre killings, gas chambers, crematoria. I would like them to be right, because in th that case, I would have kept my family. Deniers are not crazy. They are dangerous people. Nazi or neo-Nazi. They deny yesterday's crimes to commit other tomorrow. My duty is to testify. And those who hear a witness become witness themselves. Simon has traveled the world, telling his story in France, Belgium, Germany, and the United States, often accompanied by his grandson, Roman, who joined us for this meeting. Here is Roman talking about one such experience. We met um, in Los Angeles, the, a girl. Oh, <laughs> she, a girl was pregnant and jumped off the train, and we met the the girl who, who was in the belly. You know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a really nice uh, meeting. Really uh, incredible. Really. Yeah. Wow. But it is not just the atrocities of World War II that Simon feels compelled to campaign against. I speak also on behalf of the victims. But Hitler did not only Jews kill. Jews do not have a monopoly of pain. I think also of other atrocities, such as the Armenian's genocide and the one in Rwanda, Africa. The far right is a danger to humanity. It is a cradle of fascism, nazism, racism and anti-Semitism that I suffered. It is a cradle of hatred. It must be fought, not through violence, but through peaceful means, including through education, information, the duty of memory. And by voting only for democratic parties, I, I would I want to say that not everyone who votes for the far right is a fascist. Many are mistaken in distress. But among the leaders, 
They are dangerous people and neo-Nazi. Simon's activism has brought his story into the public light, bringing him into connection with others who had their own, often terrible, experiences during the war. In 2011, he received a phone call from a 16-year-old, Sasha Rangoni, who had heard him speak. Sasha had recently heard another man called Kunrad Tinol tell his own story. Tinol was the son of a Flemish Nazi supporter, and since the war had long held a heavy sense of guilt for what people like his parents and older brothers, who had joined the SS, had done. The 16-year-old Sacha listened to Tinol and decided to connect him with Simon Gronowski. I met Kunrad Tinel by chance, who was only six years old when Hitler attacked Belgium. And he's not responsible for his father's Flemish Nazi ideas. He also carried the weight of his father's deeds for 60 years until he courageously wrote his family's dark past. When I met him, he, he said to me, when I read your story, Simon, I cried. And I replied, the children of the Nazis are not guilty. These simple words, obvious words, had a great effect on him because these words came from a victim of the Nazi. A great friendship was born between us. And now I can say that Conradinel is my friend and more than my friend is my brother. As it happens, one of Kunrad Tienel's brothers who had joined the SS during the war had served as a guard at Dossin Barracks, the very prison where Simon and so many others had been held before their deportation. Almost certainly, their paths had crossed there during the war, and now, many years later, they would cross again, when Kunrad asked Simon to meet his brother, where he lay terminally ill in hospital. In 2013, the Waffen-SS, who had been my Nazi jailer in Mechelen, came to me for forgiveness. Feeling his sincerity, I forgave him. I feel that he was sincere. What I say today is not a message of grief but of hope and happiness. Life is beautiful, but is also a constant struggle. No one is immune to adversity, but when it comes, it must be faced with courage. Today there are still people and nations in the world who suffer. There are wars and horrors. I take sides for no one except for the victims. And all lives are of equal value. 
I take sides for peace. And I am sure that one day those who are in conflict today will coexist. For example, the Israelis people and Palestinians will make peace between them. I'm sure of this. Will coexist in a world where friendship has overcome hatred and where everyone has the same rights that is absolutely necessary. One condition of the peace that everyone have the same rights. Despite the tragic events of the past and those of today, I keep my faith in the future because I believe in human goodness. Long live peace and friendship among men. There is little doubt that Simon has made a huge impact over the course of his life, truly making the most of the opportunities that his mother made possible when she made her decision on the wagon. He has written multiple books, including one with Kunrad Tinel, which we have quoted from multiple times in this episode. The full title is Neither Guilty Nor a Victim, Finally Liberated. An English composer called Howard Moody once met Simon and told him about his plans to write an opera about his life. I responded, thank you, sir. But I didn't believe him. It is an opera of my story. It's impossible. But uh, he did it. And this uh, opera, Push, this is the name of this opera, Push, the gesture of my mother. She pushed me out of the train, the death train. And this opera is a masterpiece. Music has long been an integral part of Simon's life. Inspired by his beloved pianist's sister, Ita, he was accompanied by In the Mood as he fled through the forest and he picked up piano himself without lessons or knowing how to read music, becoming the accomplished jazz pianist that he is today. He even became a bit of a sensation during the COVID pandemic when his grandkids set speakers up by his front window and he could play jazz for the neighborhood. All the music you've heard on this episode was Simon playing for us, which he needed absolutely no encouragement to do. Finally, it was time to say goodbye to this remarkable man. After fond adieus and photographs for posterity, we jump back in the little red car and once more hurtle through the bleak, grey, wintry traffic. Outside of Brussels, we decided to make a quick stop at Mechelen, that town where the Dossen barracks are. Today, the barracks serve as an archive, as well as hosting a memorial museum to the victims of the Nazis who were deported from there. Outside the building, impossible to miss is one of the cattle wagons that made up the deportation convoys that left Mechelen, headed for Auschwitz and other death camps. We stood there, 
looking at the awfully small size of something into which 50 people or more could be crammed, but out of which Simon Kronowski was able to leap to his life and liberty. Despite all the sorrow and hardship he went through at such a young age, he still carries eternal optimism, sustained by the love of his family. This has allowed him to grow past his trauma, even coming to forgive one of those who locked him up. He says that if he can forgive his Nazi jailer, it's because he never felt hatred. Hatred is not worth it because it doesn't bring back the dead. The hatred is a disease that I never had. <laughs> Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com. This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.